What if I told you that being in the right place at the right time was not a circumstance of luck? What if I told you it's a skill that you could learn and leverage to achieve your goals and dreams? This is the Right Place Right Now podcast with Travis Fields and Brandon Johnson. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Today's guest is Doug the Clydesdale Comstock. He's an inspirational speaker, adventurer, and coach on the topics of mental toughness, high performance, and excellence. Doug is one of those guys that just has a lot of cool stories from a lot of really cool experiences. He's a former Alaska Deadliest Catch Fisherman, a three-time finisher of the Hawaii Ironman Triathlon. He's a renowned open water swimmer and is an entrepreneur and owner of AED Service America, a company that delivers and maintains automated external defibrillators. At the age of 60, Doug Solo swam for 13 hours and 20 minutes from England to France, covering 19 miles across the famed English Channel, falling just two miles short of the French coast because of an injury that he suffered to his shoulder. In 2019, at the age of 64, Doug became one of the oldest swimmers in the world to swim from Europe to Africa across the Gibraltar Strait. When he's not swimming or running his business, Doug is also the founder of Getting to Goal Seminars and Coaching, offering high-performance coaching programs to aspiring individuals and corporations in the areas of sales performance, mental toughness, and strategic business development. This guy does everything, and his story is awesome. You're going to realize the type of energy that Doug came with right away. We didn't even get a chance to ask him a question, and he started telling stories. So we're going to jump into the first one with Doug Clydesdale Comstock. Enjoy the show. All right. So I was 25 years old and I started, uh, I've been self-employed. I'm 66 right now. I've been self-employed all of my life with the exception of four, eight years. I worked for a, uh, an AED manufacturer. Well, when I was 25, I wanted to represent this one specific line of exercise equipment in California. So I called the vice president of the company. This was long before the days where you could get a plane ticket easily online. You had to call a, a travel agent. It was a hassle to get a plane ticket back in 1985. I called up and I proposed to the vice president of this company called Kaiser out in California that I wanted to, I wanted to share with the president of the company something that I thought was a great vision for his company and how I could be involved. And the vice president said to me, if you propose that to Dennis Kaiser, the president of the company, he said to me, you won't get the first base. It's exactly what he said. So talking about putting yourself in the right place at the right time. And I said, Mike, well, I, while I really appreciate everything you've said, I said, I, I really need to hear that coming from Dennis. And he said, well, I'm not going to put you on the phone with him. And I said, oh, no, I'm not asking you to do that. I'm, tell, I'm calling you to tell you what I'm going to do tomorrow. Uh, I'm going to get a plane ticket or I've gotten a plane ticket. I'm going to fly from Cali uh, Connecticut to California. I'm, I'm going to land in LA and have lunch with my brother. And then I'm going to rent a car and I'm going to drive four hours to Fresno. And I'm going to wait in Dennis's lobby until he meets with me. And he laughed and he said, no, you won't do that. And I said, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I will do that. I am doing that. And he said, well, Dennis won't meet with you. And I, I said, he will meet with me because he'll either think I'm crazy and want to get the police in there to take me out of there, or he'll say anybody that has that much gumption must have something really powerful that they want to say, and he'll want to hear what I have to say. 
so I did that. I, I uh, got my plane ticket. I flew to California. I drove four hours to Fresno. And I didn't have the money to do that at the time, but I really believed in what my passion was for, for what I was going to offer him. I walk into the office and this guy that had told me he wasn't going to allow me to see Dennis meets me at the door and he said, I can't believe you're here. And he smiled. He said, I can't believe you're here, dude. And I said, I told you I was coming. He said, man. And by this time we had had some friendly banter. It wasn't like that was antagonistic at all. And he said, I'll give you 15 minutes with Dennis. And I said, that's all I want. An hour and a half later, I came out of that business meeting and Dennis said to me on the way out the door, everything that you said to me, Doug, makes sense to me. The only thing is I've got a new vice president that's starting sometime soon and I want him to have uh, some kind of input on that decision. I said, great. Well, anyway, fast forward six months after that, everything that I had outlined for this guy, I got exactly what I wanted. So again, the, one of the most powerful lessons that I've learned in my life is the ability to not listen to no. 95% of the time, most people that get no for an answer are going to take it as face value and say, I don't have enough confidence myself or the guy said no or whatever the case, but it takes a lot of chutzpah to say, I'm going to get on a plane because I honestly believe what I have to say has got value and I'm going to at least present it to the appropriate people versus having the gatekeeper tell me no. So again, I think about being in the right place there. Very rarely are you going to find yourself in the right place where somebody says, I'd like to give you a million dollars for writing a book. But I think that we can create the right place just by being persistent and, and really believing uh, in our hearts that we have something that will truly improve the lives of those people that we serve. So that's one story that was really powerful to me that I, I carry with me uh, every day. In 1980, I moved to Alaska and I wanted to work on a fishing boat. It's a catch-22. I, I pounded the docks for three weeks and I asked every skipper in the harbor, could I get a job? And the catch-22 is this. They would all say to you, well, I'd like to hire you, but you have no experience. And of course, how do you get experience on a fishing boat, but working on a fishing boat? So I kept on, I knew I was a hard worker and I kept on asking and they kept on saying no. Finally, I said to myself, well, I've got to make a twist. And I think sometimes finding the right place or the right opportunity is looking at how can I do something a little bit differently that I hadn't thought of before. So I said, I now went, went to back to uh, the, the best skippers in the harbor. And I said, look, I will work on this boat for free. No charge at all. I would rather work on the boat for free than to work in a cannery, which a cannery is a, a frozen food processing plant where you're indoors wearing rain gear all day long. I said, I would rather work on your boat for free than work in the cannery. And here's the deal. It's not that I want to work for free, but all I want is an opportunity to show you my value. If you think that I haven't delivered that value at any point during the season, you don't have to pay me anything. But at some point in time, if you think that I'm worth something, then pay me. Well, as it turned out, the best skipper in the harbor said to me, he called me Bear because there was another guy in the boat named Doug. He said to me, Bear, after he thought about it for two days, he called me. He said, I'm 56 years old. My back is not what it once was. I'd like to hire you, but nobody works on my boat for free. I will pay you a half a cruise share. Again, it was, a, it was an important lesson to me in terms of if you, if you really truly believe that you have something of value to keep on presenting it in different ways with the hope that finally that new way of presenting something will finally stick. It's kind of, it's kind of funny. Now I'm 66. 
I met with my skipper in Homer, Alaska this summer in June. He's now 98 years old and I'm 66 and we're both old men. We both had a lot to laugh about. But uh, yeah, again, I think that these moments, you, you, when, when I read that first paragraph, it said finding the right place man, and the right time. There is never the right place at the right time. I believe, I honestly, well, that's not exactly true, but my honest belief is that it's up to us to create those right places, those right times, those right opportunities. And they are all around us. We just have to make a decision to really look for them. So those are my two stories about finding the right place at the right time. So you mentioned in both of those stories, believing in your value. And you, you in both of those instances, you said, I honestly believe that I had something valuable to add to this situation. I think a lot of people get caught right there and say, well, I don't know, I don't know what my value is. I don't know how I can be valuable. What would you say to somebody in that situation where it's just like, I don't know, I don't know how to. Yeah, we all have value. You know, we, my, the company that, uh, the company that I have now, there is something that we live by. It's a quote by Lou Holtz. Um, Lou Holtz said the three things that people want to see from us before they'll be in a relationship with us of any kind is in this order. Can I trust you? Will you care about me? Will you strive for excellence? Can I trust you? Will you care about me? Will you strive for excellence? So my value really in terms of what it is that I've always tried to deliver is really through that lens. How can I show somebody that I work for, work with, work for, that I really care about them, not care about them just from a superficial standpoint, but genuinely care about them. Uh, can they trust me to show them that they, 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 I can be trusted, is that you can leave your wallet. Uh, people sometimes say, how come you leave your keys in the car? Nobody's going to steal my car. Well, I'm driving, <laughs> driving a Corolla. Nobody's going to steal my car. <laughs> it, it was, it was my uh, Porsche, that might be a different story. But <laughs> right. Here's the thing. The most important thing I would tell anybody is if you don't know what your value is, therein lies your homework. You need to begin to figure out why you are put here. We're each put here. We're each put here. We all have value despite where we've come from, despite the hardships that we've endured. At the end of the day, well, I, I think I've read this this quote before. God doesn't make garbage. Um, my honest belief, honest belief, is that everyone has value, uh, and if a person doesn't know what their value is, then then it's time to start hanging around with the right people that will help you excavate that value. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is by Les Brown. He says, "We become the average of the five people that we hang around with the most often." You've probably heard that before, and it's true. If you're not having people help you elevate your game you got to you got to hang out with those people because not only will they show you the way but they'll help you uncover things about yourself that you might not find any other way so again how what would i say to somebody i'd say first of all to know that you have value what that value is i don't know i don't know what that value is that's your homework if you don't know what it is begin to begin to do the homework on that right and and to your point you showed that you could demonstrate that value of who you were and what you brought in very different scenarios, right? On a boat yeah, versus yeah. we'll get into your business and your books and your swimming, all that stuff here in a second. But it, it might not, you might not even know what your purpose is yet, but to the situation that you desire, you have something to bring. You just need to figure that out. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it could be as simple as, uh, you know, I was in West Virginia a number of years ago, maybe four or five, six years ago, uh, doing some missions work down there. And there was a woman weaving baskets and her calloused hands were unbelievably calloused i was afraid to arm wrestle with her 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 arms were so calloused and her she was such, such a strong woman 
And therein lies her the value that she delivered this beautiful, these beautiful bowls made out of uh, grapevines and some of them were made out of straw. And, and I'm thinking, wow, to now look at that person's work from the outside and to see uh, how much work, how much her hands had had worked to deliver this value that there in the there was beauty for me because I could see the her gift really was uh, the the passion that she put in in terms of building these baskets. So again, we all have value. You just got we got to figure out what that value is. Yeah, definitely. One of the things you gave out of the first story that I wrote down right away was. Don't take no for an answer. Most people end with no too soon. Is that something that's always been in you? Was that taught to you? Where does that, there's a level of confidence that comes with that. Can we develop it? Yeah, I think we can. And here's the thing. I think what's really important, again, part of that uh, quote of Holtz, will you trust me or can I trust you? Will you care about me? Will you strive for excellence? I think that that third, third thing comes in in terms of excellence. Will you strive for excellence? I think it's really important in whatever it is that we do to strive for excellence, to do the very best job that I possibly can, whatever it is that I'm doing. I, I have a responsibility to do the very best job. I have an opportunity, but I have a responsibility as well. And I honestly believe that when you have created the situation where you live in excellence, you're doing your very best to deliver the very best you can to clients, not all, you have a responsibility to articulate that value, not out of the side, not, not coming from your ego, but I know I'm genuinely, I care more about this person. I know I'm going to do a better job than anybody else. So again, if you're operating from a place of excellence, means you're not cutting corners, you're not trying to cheat the system, but you're doing your gosh darn best to deliver value, then you have a responsibility to be able to articulate that. So that's, I would say, tell anybody, is know in your heart you're doing your best. Now it's not about you. It's about serving the customer. It's about giving the customer what's best for them. And if you know that you're striving for excellence, you are the best. So I think that's where it comes from. And the other thing too, in terms of no, I, my parents told us at, uh, at a very young age, you guys have probably heard this before, if you don't ask, the answer will always be no. So my daughter, listen to this, It was this, this is where, where uh, some of these stories really come full circle and it's a beautiful thing. My, my youngest daughter, middle daughter, graduated from UConn two, two years ago. She just got her first job for a company in California called Volcom. I'd never heard of it, but apparently it's a big surfing company. They offered a, her a job at, $41,000 a year. And I asked her, how do you feel about that? She said, well, that's kind of what I'm making here now, dad. And I said, okay. I didn't want to put my words in her brain. I said, well, so what, what are your thoughts? And she said, I'd like to be making more. And I said, okay, uh, what, what do you feel like you're worth? And she said, or what would make you feel good? And she said, I would really feel good if I was making 48,000. So I said, okay. So I wouldn't tell your boss that you want 48,000. I'd tell him you want 55,000. Anyway, because I said, if you don't ask that question, you're going to be at 40,000. So you've got to learn to be able to ask the hard questions. So uh, sure enough, she put an email together. She had me look at it. And I made a couple of revisions. I said, your letter, the way it looks right now, maybe it looks more like from a college student. You may want to do this, add this, for, make it more, more professional. Anyway, to make a long story short, uh, less than 24 hours later, she got her 48,000. And the best part of that story is that she just felt so good about it. Here's one of the things I would tell any woman that might be listening. Listen to this. A friend of mine is a private school 
I won't even say the name of the private school, but it's a private school close to where I'm sitting right now. She's the director of human resources and has been there in the private school setting for a decade or two. She said that every guy that comes through the door, because she's ultimately the hiring authority, every guy that walks through the door, whenever salary is mentioned, a guy will always say, that's a little bit less than I was thinking, or I really need more to be able to take the job or something to that effect will always say, I need more. Every woman sitting at the other side of her table never asks for more, never asks for more. So somewhere along the line, we have instilled in our girls that they shouldn't ask for more. And she sits at the other end of the table, wanting to give them more, hoping that they will say, well, I, hoping that they will say what a guy will say, and they don't. She said, I will sit at the other side of that table and I will say to them, are there any other questions you would like to ask me about anything? giving them an opportunity to say something about income, and they never do. So if you're a woman listening to this, part of creating the right place at the right time, especially when it comes to a job, always ask for more. There are people that are willing to pay you more if only you'll ask. For some reason, it is innate in, in guys or it's something that is learned in guys, but for some reason in girls, they're, they're less likely to ask for it than a guy. So I think that's really important. There's this... Um this confidence piece to this, that ask for more, always ask for more, always know your value, bring that to the table. But the part that you tie back to that was that third thing from Lou Holtz. And it's, if you honestly believe that you're bringing value, if you're really working hard to bring that value, then it's your responsibility to be able to communicate that to other people. Like that resonates so hard for me because there are times in my career with this podcast, let's say, reach out to you. I have huge hesitancy even though I know the intent of this is to push people to you where this is what we want to do. We want to share these stories, but the confidence doesn't come with it. So what I'm hearing you say that is we can practice it. It's intentional. We need to focus on that. And then we even need to instill it into our kids and especially our, our young girls. Again, it has to start. If, if all, if all we use is to learn the words to be able to articulate that value without delivering the value, it becomes ego-driven and it's phony. It's not authentic. However, if we do the work in terms of delivering something of excellence, delivering of highest value, then it becomes a responsibility. Years ago, I used to teach my sales guys. I called it the, in, in selling, we call it closing, how to close someone. And I called it the Grand Canyon close. So you've been to the Grand Canyon, maybe you have, maybe you haven't, but you've seen that around the Grand Canyon, there are no fences. There are no fences for the most part around the Grand Canyon. You could pretty much step off anywhere you'd want. So I would say to my sales guys, knowing that we delivered excellence more than our competitors, if there was a blind guy that was standing next to the rim of the Grand Canyon and the breeze comes up from the Grand Canyon, doesn't come from the backside, and the blind guy said, well, I want to walk closer over here because it's cooler over here. The breeze is coming from this direction. But you know, you can see that there's this huge ditch down there and you don't want to... 
how compelling would you be to stop that person from walking over the edge? You'd pretty, be pretty compelling because you'd have a responsibility to stop them from falling over the edge. Well, I think the same thing in, in terms of sales or any relationship that we have. If you have done the work, again, it can't be from the standpoint of being salesy and just words. It has to be behind closed doors. You are executing value 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You're doing your best to do whatever you can for these people then you have a responsibility to do the Grand Canyon close, tackle them, prevent them from going anyplace else, because even though they don't know it, you know that you are their best opportunity to achieve whatever it is they're trying to do. I honestly believe we have a responsibility when we've set that groundwork. So I have a business, we, we manage and maintain AEDs all over the country. I can tell you this, there are lots of people that do it, but not to the level that we do. Not to, and what I mean by that is one of the manufacturers that's in this business, an AED saves someone's life, automated external defibrillator if they go into cardiac arrest. One manufacturer that delivers on-site AED maintenance programs will allow a client for wait, to wait up to six weeks for a beeping device to be resolved. A beeping device means an out-of-service device. An out-of-service device means if someone goes into cardiac arrest in that building, the device won't work. In terms of our call, uh, six weeks, unacceptable. We're typically, our technicians anywhere in the country, our technicians are typically on site within two to four hours from the time we receive a call for a beeping device. We guarantee the client will be on site within 24 hours. Well, if we know that we're competing against this manufacturer and that manufacturer will wait up to six weeks and we know we're going to be on site within two to four hours, I have a responsibility because I know there's a six-week period of time that that device might need to be used and it won't be used if this customer goes with that. that. So I have a responsibility to articulate that value. So again, the only way I can articulate that value is if I know we're delivering the very best in class that we possibly can, and then I have a responsibility. That's where it all comes from. Six weeks, that's a life or death scenario. What the heck are we talking about here? <laughs> that's a no-brainer to me. Well, if, if what it falls falls into is too big for my britches, we've been doing it this way for so long, nobody's called us on it. No harm, no foul. That's really what it boils down to. And then, then when the underdog comes in and shows people what they really need to have, they say, whoa, what a refreshing breath of fresh air this is because they're really frustrated knowing they have a device that's out of service that can't be used. It's a scary thing, you know? So, yeah. So again, that's why I tell my guys all the time, we have to deliver best in class because from the point of sale, if we're meeting with clients and we're doing six weeks, we can't authentically sit there and say, we strive for excellence because we know we're taking six weeks to, to touch that device. But when we know we're going to do it in two to four hours and nobody else is doing it, now we can, with a clear conscience and an open heart, say to them, you, you, you need to do a business with us. You need to. So we're able to articulate that value because the volume of business that we get uh, oftentimes is a direct result of having one client talk to another client and say, yeah, these guys are the real deal. They're there within two to four hours. So, but yeah, I think that that in terms of value to first of all, strive for excellence and then understand that it's not about you. It is not about you. When you strive for excellence, it's about what's best for the client. And now you can remove your ego from the equation and get to the point of really what's best for them. Make sense? Yeah, absolutely. How do you take that mindset into areas that isn't career? I do some uh, long distance events. I'm into long distance athletics. I've been involved with uh, long distance athletics for, for probably half my life. A guy changed my life years ago 
uh, on the, the fields of the Hawaiian Ironman. His name was uh, Keith Albright. And I, I went to the Ironman check-in office and uh, they asked me what, how much I weighed. And I told them 220 pounds and they, uh, everybody in the office laughed. And then somebody said, oh, you're a Clydesdale. I didn't know what it, I mean, I knew a Clydesdale was a horse. Yeah. So out of 2,200 athletes, only about 20 or 30 of them were Clydesdales. The rest are all thoroughbreds. Clydesdale mean, means at that time you were over 200 pounds. I weighed 220 pounds. So I was a, I was a fairly a weighty uh, Clydesdale. It was the Ironman's way of saying, you're not right for the part. You don't really belong here. That's not what they said, but that's what I, that's what I took it as. Anyway, so there's this guy in the office and uh, he sees that I'm a little dejected as I leave the office. And, and I said to him, uh, he said, are you, are you okay? And I said, well, I'm not even sure I'm, I want to even do the race anymore. He said, dude, you've trained for this race for two years. You might as well do it. So I said, you're right. And he said, I'm not right for the part either. Uh, he said, I'm not really designed for this, but I've done this race five times. Go out and do it. Do the best you can. So anyway, I trained with this guy for probably two weeks before the race. On race day, I was, uh, I'd finished the swim in just over an hour. He was out of the water in uh, two hours and 19 minutes. You're given two hours and 20 minutes to finish. When I got off my bike, he was probably 30 or 40 miles behind me. They'll give you an idea. When I started the marathon, I was at mile 13 when he got off his bike. So I always wow. tell people, you don't, you don't need to know too much about marathon racing to know that if you've got a 13 mile lead in a 26 mile race, there's no way you're going to be caught. But then at 20 mile, 24, 25, I tell people if I was going any slower, I'd be going backwards. And I hear these encouraging words coming from behind me. I hear, keep going, Doug, you're looking strong. It was the guy, he made up the distance and he went on to pass me, beat me to the finish line. And the part I didn't tell you is that that one step that it took him to pass me became a, became a defining moment in my life. And the reason why is I was in the best shape of my life at that moment. I was 38 years old. He was 69 years old. Wow. So I saw him at the airport the next day. And he said to me, or I said to him, first of all, I said, how was it possible that you were able to do that? I'm much younger than you. I'm in the best shape of my life. I had a 13 mile head start on you and you beat me. And he said to me, when I was your age, it wasn't possible. He said, because I remember sitting on my couch one day and I could feel like I was getting old and I didn't mind aging, but I refused to get old. And I said, well, what's the difference? And he said to me, a fine bottle of red wine ages, but it never gets old. In other words, it gets better with time. A fresh, or a, an aged block of cheddar cheese that ages, it doesn't get old, it gets better with time. And he said, the human spirit is like that as well. He said, the key to life, Doug, the key to life, and when you talk about applying this to other areas, the key to life is that you have to maintain a active interest in your physical, your spiritual, and your emotional well-being. Again, the key to life is that you've got to maintain an active interest in your physical, your spiritual, and your emotional well-being. And you'll never get old. You'll age. The only thing that will change is what you see in the mirror. He said, you see, the problem for most people is they get old because they begin at some point in time to be passively engaged in their lives. They 
go to work the same way. They stop at the same coffee. They, the routine is the same and they just move through life. That's why one of my favorite quotes is by Thoreau. He said, the mass, was it Thoreau or Emerson? The mass of, the, the mass of men lead lives in quiet desperation. It's pretty profound. The mass of men and women lead lives in quiet desperation. And I honestly believe the, the reason, and I believe that to be true, I honestly believe the reason why that to be true is that most people go through the motions of daily living. They're not actively engaged in excellence. They're not actively engaged at, in their physical, their spiritual, emotional well-being. So I don't swim the English Channel because it's, it's, it's something that I have this passion to do. The reason why I do that is in, in those areas of my life, one of the things that I know that I call it um, living your life in the green zone. Picture a fuel tank where you've got the needle going back and forth. The green zone, straight up and down, half a tank. Anything to the right of the, becomes in the green zone where my life rocks. And I don't pinned all the way to the, the right. Life can't get any better than I'm experiencing. To the left of that is, is this all there is? And then further down and then finally I'm depressed. Well, I will tell you this. One of the things that I've learned about myself, some people metabolically are born where their life is in the green zone all the time. My sister's one of those. Doesn't seem to have to work on it. But I know for myself that if I'm not doing the things, if I'm not actively engaged in my physical, spiritual, and emotional well-being, for me, my life will be left of center where I'm wondering, how come I have parents that love me? My parents weren't alcohol, alcoholics. We had enough money. I had siblings that never did drugs. I had an easy. And why, so why, why have I lived most of my life where this, why is this all there is? I have so much to be thankful for. Why is it? I've just recognized the fact that that's where my life has been, is that that's how metabolically I came into this planet. It could have been because my mother had a nicotine addiction when I was born. I, I don't know. But I know for me that in order for me to live, and I do live in the green zone, but without being actively engaged in those three areas and in more areas, then I know that I will settle on a passive existence where I wonder, what's this all about? So for me, being actively engaged, uh, you know, how do you manifest this in other areas? I, I honestly believe you've got to become a student in your own life. How can I be more actively engaged? If I had a guy one time come up to me and he said, man, I've always wanted to be in a band. And I said, well, why haven't you started a band then? He said, because I'm a lousy guitarist. And I said, cool. I said, cool, go find a lousy drummer. And, and I said, find a lousy bass player. So listen to this. I've seen these guys and they're lousy. <laughs> Here, here's the thing I will tell you. Here's the thing. You see, we wait for moments in life. We wait for moments for the things, the stars to align. The economy's got to be right to start a business. I've got to have the right degree to be able to, right? We, we wait for those stars to align. I said to him, start a band. You don't have to be good at it. If it makes your heart sing, one of the things I say is one of my own quotes is, do what makes your heart sing and your life becomes the dance. So I said, go start the band. I saw them play, they were terrible. But here's the thing. When this guy stands up behind that microphone, something changes in his physiology. Something changes. I don't know what it is, but he's not a lousy musician. He is Mick Jagger. And when you see someone step up, I don't care how good or bad or indifferent they are. When they, you see them step up and you see that passion come through them, man, it can't help but inspire 
you to, to live a bigger life. So that's the key. Don't wait to be good at something. You know, we will, I call them Clydesdale moments. The reason why I call it a Clydesdale is because again, so many of, so many of us have lived in a space where we're not right for the part. We're too old or we're too young. We're not strong enough. We're not pretty enough. I don't have the right degree. I didn't go to the right school. Speaking of schools, you guys know where I went to school? No. You heard of Yale? Well, I went to school a half an hour away from there at Central Connecticut State College. So, so again, we all have our version of these Clydesdale moments. I'm too ugly. I'm not fit enough. I'm whatever it happens to be. I think if you reach a certain station in life where you say, I don't care if I'm good enough. You know, I, I, I would tell you that I am not a writer and yet I've written a book. I'm not a sw very good swimmer, but I've sw swum from Spain to Africa. Um, I'm not a very good triathlete, but I've done the Hawaii Ironman. You know, I, I can go right down. Don't wait to be good at something. Don't wait to be young enough. Don't wait. I'm trying my second ch uh, channel attempt in four years. In 2024, I'll be 69. There are a lot of people that say he's too old. I am too old, but I'm going to do it anyway. It's not about the goal. It's never about the goal for me. It's about how can I lose, how can I move that life meter into the green zone? That's what it's about. I need the goal out in front of me to be able to work for, towards something. And I honestly believe we all need something out in front of us, regardless of what it might be. It might be writing a book. It might be getting your PhD. It might be uh, getting off the couch and walking a 5K. It doesn't matter what it is. Whatever it is that you can work on that helps you remain actively engaged uh, in your physical, your spiritual, and your emotional well-being. To me, working in your spiritual well-being doesn't mean sitting in church every day, but it could be uh, doing missions work in in uh, the, the the city of your choice that it makes you feel like uh, God or whatever your uh, whatever you can call the universe or something spiritually is moving through you where you're you're giving back to to people that need it. So spirituality doesn't need to be, to me, does not mean to be uh, reading the Bible. It, it means to be actively engaged in something that rises the spirit within you. But yeah, so that's my recipe for life really is to, to be excited about life, to be able to find ways uh, that are outside of your career is to kind of look at your life meter gauge and, and wonder where, I'll send you my graphic that I use in speeches. Uh, where am I on that gauge? If I'm if I'm there and I'm not doing any work, can I expect it to get any better? You know, again, uh, you guys will hear lots of quotes from me. The only place that happiness comes before hard work is in the dictionary. So I think that we need to put in hard work. Life is work. Uh, I've lived long enough to tell you that if you want to have a cultivate a life that's worth living, man, you got to work at it, you know? So uh, uh, I think that a lot of people one of the things that really changed my life was Robin Williams. Here's a guy that had all the money in the world, great sense of humor, loved by so many people, yet behind closed doors at the end of the day when he put his head on the pillow, things must have been pretty difficult for him. That changed my life and my speeches because I realized if, if Robin Williams could wear that mask, if he wore that mask so effectively, how many people in my audiences were also wearing that mask that needed to hear me say, my life meters on the left, you guys, it's not easy. It's not, e the reason why I do these things is because I know for me, that's what moves my life meter into the green zone. Otherwise it would be sitting to the left of the center where I'm thinking, is this all there is? And then having moments like you're feeling depressed. 
The fact is I've been able to identify what it is that I need to do to move my life meter into the green zone. And I have a responsibility to myself as well as to those people around me to do the best job I can to move that uh, life meter into the green zone. I think that's where most people get caught right there is they don't know how to identify what it even is. Uh, I, I've seen, and, and I would be curious to see what your opinion is on this. Once people know what to do, there, there's a lot more action that happens. The hardest part is figuring out what to do. So how do you, what have you seen that works in your, in your career? I know you do a lot of speeches like this. What do you see as the biggest factor? Yeah, that's really, I, I tell you what, that's, that's really easy to identify in many ways. For example, if something really upsets you, let's say uh, the whaling industry off China really upsets you and you can't sleep at night because the whaling industry really upsets you. And you know Greenpeace is a group that has been identified as trying to stop these whaling ships in China. And for God's sakes, if something makes you that angry that you can't sleep at night, you have a passion for that. Find a way to align yourself with, with Greenpeace, whether that be getting on their boat, becoming part of their board. So the things that for me, one of the things that, uh, that I enjoy swimming, I, I've always enjoyed athletics. So for me, that helps me because it makes me feel alive. So I think that the, the, the things that make you mad, uh, like Greenpeace, the things that make you sad. So um, when I see the, uh, the commercials, I remember as a kid seeing the commercials, and I still, they still hit, hit a, a heartstring seeing those ASPCA commercials on with the sad dog sitting out. Oh, right? yeah, and a song, too much. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> I mean, so, so the, I mean, they do that for a reason. So if it makes you so sad, in other words, those things that make you really angry, those things that make you sad, those things that make you feel like your heart's on fire, those are the things that your, your life is telling you that are important to you. You know, one of the things that I would tell you, you've heard of these accountability coaches before. I've always said, if you need an accountability coach, really what you need is a stronger goal. That's really what you need. Because when you have something that sets your soul on fire, either because you're so angry or you're so sad, you don't need an accountability coach saying, well, maybe you should make that call. And you're so on fire that nothing, it, it really falls into the category, just try to stop me. When, when you've got something that's burning that passion inside of you so strongly, you don't need an accountability coach. So nobody's going to be able to stop you. So I would tell you that to, to really, what is it that really gets you angry? And how can you do something that helps you work towards that, you know, on whatever it is that angers you, how can you help solve that problem? What is it that makes you sad? If something really makes you sad, maybe look at how you can get involved with the, uh, could be the local humane society. If something really excites you and, you know, I have a buddy that gets lost in his piano. He said, I can sit in my piano for four or five hours a day. And I, I don't even know where the time went. It makes his heart sing. So I think that though, if, if you can attach an emotion to something that oftentimes is the best place to start, figure out what emotion really resonates with you and then find a way to be able to solve a, a, an issue or work towards an issue uh, and some, some emotion that's important. Yeah. That's a, that's an interesting distinction that I, I don't know that I've heard in exactly those words is it doesn't have, I think so many people just talk about following your dreams and the thing that makes you excited, anger and sadness. And like, I have to 
fix that and stop that and be a part of the solution, those can also be things that, that move the needle. But I wonder how many people miss that. Yeah, I think I think that's really important. We talk about uh, we often it's easy for us to talk about our passions of something that we 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 love. But maybe where your love really stems from is how you can help uh, how you can help in some other area, not necessarily uh, love because you love doing the actual event, but love the fact that I'm helping solve a problem. Yeah, it doesn't have to be something. It has to be something that resonates in your core that gets you up and make you have a hard time sleeping at night because this thing really uh, sets your soul on fire. I think that wherever that emotion is coming from, that's the key is to really identify what is it? What emotion do I most often have? And then uh, go for it, figure out how you can connect to that. There's this entire pitfall to our societal norms though, that go back to what you saying, like everybody just goes through the motions, which means our emotions are just stale and stagnant. It's it's like a beige colored everything your whole life. So if you don't even have those things around you to affect you emotionally, you're not even giving yourself a chance then to identify your purpose. Well, you know, I, I wrote an article years ago about green people, brown people. And uh, what I meant by that is I remember when I was first married, my wife had all sorts of plants around. The house looked like a menagerie with a, a terrarium. And uh, after the birth of the first kid, the plants didn't get watered quite so often and you'd walk on the house and the plants would go like that and then you know she'd water them and and uh, woo, the plant would you know turn back to green after child number two was born you know more of the plants were looking a little a little straggly and after the third child born forget it every six weeks you'd be throwing plants out but plants go through this nash this uh natural level evolution they're green because they're vibrant and they're growing you see a plant only has two things it's either growing or it's not on its way to dying right there's no in between so it's either you're fertilizing and watering it and it's growing or it's on its way to dying and it doesn't require that much fertilizer and it doesn't require that much water to keep it vibrant right we know this about plants and i've oftentimes wondered if people lived that way if they could see every time they looked in the mirror whether they were green or brown would they live the way that they're currently living? I think that we'd see a lot of brown people. But the interesting thing, the cool fix here is it doesn't take that much to go from that brown on the way of dying. And when I say dying, I don't mean physically dying. We die long before chronologically dying. A lot of people die long before that is how can we move that life meter? What are the things that help us move that life meter so we ourselves uh, behave more like plants? We, we are green versus brown. So it's, it's one of the things that, again, when, when one of my daughters will call me up and say, Dad, I'm really struggling right now. The first question I'll ask him was, when was the last time you worked out? First question, when was the last time you worked out? When was the last time you went for a three-mile run? Well, it's been three weeks. And I said, do me a favor. I remember this one that was at UConn. I said, do me a favor, go run three miles, call me when you're done. Call me in an hour when you're done. She called me up and she said, dad, thank you. You see, life is kind of like a seesaw, right? We don't have to make the problem go away, but if we can tip the balance even by 10%, it's amazing by tipping that balance even 10%, what it can do to your psyche. So for her that day, going out and doing a three minute, three, three mile run, three mile walk, run, whatever it was, that was enough for to change her behavior into the green zone where, uh, 
the hormones, whatever it was that were, she was the, the problems of the day. Again, we don't have to make the problem go away oftentimes, but if we can just change it a little bit, 5%, 10%, it may be enough for that day to help us get to the other side in a way that feels good. So yeah, whatever it is that helps you move that meter, I think that that's something that uh, we have, again, we have a responsive, we not only have an opportunity, but we have a responsibility to ourselves and to those people around us to do our very best job. The majority of the days, I, I do believe we each need to take a pity party periodically where you sit on the couch and say, oh, is this all there is? So it's not, not a matter of being knocked to your knees. That's part of life. And I tell people, when you get knocked to your knees, stay there, stay there for a while, because sometimes we get knocked to our knees because it changes our perspective. We will see things when, when, our, when we are on our knees that we won't see at any other time. So stay there, don't be in a rush to get up, figure out why you've been knocked to your knees, then work on it and then stand up. So but always commit to getting back up, but it's okay to get knocked to your knees. It's okay to feel like, oh, is this all there is? It's okay. It's how long we stay there. That's the important part. The green people, brown people, the nutrients, the water, the nitrates, back to just to tie it back to what you were talking about for the listeners, the emotional, physical, and spiritual, you said were the three components of that, correct? That's what this guy taught me. And I'm telling you what I have, this was in 1993. I have been paying attention to that. I remember that day him saying that to me. And I said to myself that day, I want to be that guy someday. So here's the funny thing. That was 38 years old. At 69, I'm taking on the English Channel a second time. I will be his age. And I know that younger guys are coming to me now and saying, I know I could be doing more. And again, I, I think that I have a responsibility. I hang around with, I call it hanging around with people that are 10 to 15% younger than you and 10 to 15% older than you. Of course, there are fewer of those happening all the time, but uh, the reason why is the person that's 10 or 15% older than you will inspire you to show you what's possible. And I honestly believe that that's important for me to do. I hang around with a guy that's 78 years old. Ralph said to me a month ago, he said, listen, we're going out for a 90, 90 to 100 mile training ride on our bikes. Is that something you're interested in doing? I said, no. A training ride means you're going to get there and you're going to get up there and you're going to get back and you're going to do it in five and a half, six hours. I said, Ralph, I'm, I, I could do a 30 mile training ride, 78 years old. He's asking me to go a training ride. So he inspires me because he shows me what still is possible. He's a cyclist. I'm a swimmer. But he shows me what still is possible at 78 years old if you continue to be maintain an active interest in your physical well-being and to hang around with guys that are 10 to 15 years younger than me because they push me to try to be better, to be stronger, to be a little bit faster. So I think, again, that's one of the things that that in terms of physical, spiritual and emotional well-being to to make sure you're hanging around with people that help lift you, inspire you, make you make you see what's possible. Now, I don't believe in toxic people. You will hear people say, well, what about toxic people? There is no such thing as toxic people. What there are is people that have been, I call it banged up, bruised and broken by their life journey. They're not, ne they're not toxic, they're not negative. They've been banged up, bruised and broken by their life's journey. And the reason why I think that that's really important to consider is that when we begin to look at people that way as banged up, bruised and broken versus toxic, it doesn't change who they are, it changes who we are. Now, when that person walks into the room that I know is toxic 
And I looked at them as I know they've had a tough life. I know it's part of their backstory, or maybe I don't know their backstory. I can offer a little more compassion. I can be maybe a little more understanding and that may be what they need more than anything else right now, because ten, those people tend to get back what they give to the world. So they find that everybody else is ugly because they don't realize they've been putting out ugly. But if they, if you've changed who you are in that scenario where you're looking at them not as toxic, but as banged up, bruised and broken, you might be able to approach them with a little more compassion, a little more understanding and uh, help change them. But as importantly, maybe even more importantly to change who you are in that equation. You know, it's kind of funny when I, when I wrote my book, the most important question, I didn't write anything about this book. I didn't write about anything about this in this book, but it's the most powerful question that I now ask myself that, that basically drives my life. And this is what happened. When I accepted the role, the journey, I was interviewed to write this book. I didn't self-publish. In fact, here's something that I'll, let's, let's go back. You got, we hear of something called set your intention. To me, set your intention is not what the secret, you remember the movie, The Secret, the book, The Secret, was to sit there in the own position waiting for the bike to arrive at your front door. I've never believed that to happen. I do believe that the law of attraction is really important, but you have to set your intention. What I mean by that, by setting your intention, is you have to start the wheels in motion. You have to be able to lay out how you're going to do it. And once you've set the wheels in motion, especially if it's something that you're delivering of excellence and value where it's serving other people, not being self-serving, that's a big difference. What will happen is God or the universe will find a way to be able to bring whatever it is that you want to do to fruition. So here I am writing this book in 2018. I've made the, the only decision I made that year is I was going to self-publish a book. I met with a woman up in uh, Springfield, Massachusetts, I paid her $1,000 to help organize my thoughts. That was setting my intention because I'm a swamp Yankee. I'm not going to spend $1,000 unless I'm going to bring this to fruition. So we met. And wouldn't you know, six weeks later, I got a call from a publisher, Callisto Media, out in California. And they said, we've identified you as one of 150 people we think is qualified to write a book on mental toughness. Is that something that would be of interest to you? And my first question was, how much is it going to cost me? Because these guys will call you all the time and say, for $10,000, we'll let you, let you write a chapter in a book that Brian Tracy is going to be on the front cover. And I said, if that's your model, that doesn't work. And, and she said, no, we actually would pay you. And she said, not only have we, uh, we whittled it down uh, to 150, we've actually identified five people that we want to, and this is all by, by uh, email. We found five people that we think uh, that we want to interview. Would you be interested? And I said, I would be. Well, as it turned out, I was the one that they awarded the book deal to. So not only did I not have to go through the, the hassle of self-publishing, but I got paid to write a book. So setting your intention, I honestly believe when you want to achieve something, you cannot sit there and wait for it to happen. You can't wait for the right place. You have to create it. And setting your intention to me means that you start the wheels in motion where you want to create value. My value, by the way, was that I wanted to put words on paper because I didn't get married till I was, I was in my 40s. I'm 66 years old right now. I have a 21-year-old. I knew that I wouldn't live long enough for some of the lessons that were important to me to share with my daughters. So I thought, what better way than to write a book 
they're not going to read it now, but maybe when they're 30 or 40 years old, sitting on their bed, they're wondering, how do I move through this? What was dad thinking at that time? That was my value. That was the biggest reason why I wanted to write a book was for my three daughters. So the universe knew I wasn't doing it for money. I wasn't doing it for ego. I was doing it because I wanted to create something of lasting value for my children. The universe identified that, hey, this is somebody we want to help. I truly believe this in my heart. I set my intention. I have a publisher call me up. I can't tell you how many people I know that have tried to have publishers publish books. They've, they've sent manuscripts to people, never got somebody to say, yes, we want. And I got a publisher calling me. What are the odds of that? Anyway, so that's what happened. So three weeks, three days, three weeks, something like that into my assignment of writing this book, my wife of 23 years announces that she wants to get a divorce. And I'm thinking, how in the world am I going to write a book as I'm moving through this process of the divorce? And I thought, I, I can't. So I called my publisher the very first day or the third, third day. And I said, I'm not sure I can do this. No, first day after my wife told me, it was a Friday afternoon. I said, I'm not so sure I can do this. And we had only started the book. And they said, well, if you don't think you can do it, then don't do it. And I said, well, can I have to mon till Monday to, to think about it? And she said, yeah, of course. So over the weekend, I really thought about it. And I arrived at the conclusion that if ever there was a time to write a book on mental toughness, it was when I needed to be mentally tough. So I called her on Monday and I said, I will write the book. I am so excited to write the book. And I put myself in a new mindset. I had, I think, eight weeks I was given to write the book, and I submitted the final chapter, and I felt really, I had had some pieces rejected for greater clarification, but the final chapter in its entirety was rejected. And she said, I don't remember even what it was now, but it had something to do with endurance athletics. And she said, Doug, nobody's going to, this will apply to 3% of the readers. It's not really applicable. What I want you to do is I want you to write the final chapter. And by the way, I was supposed to take everything that I had taught in the previous chapters and roll them in on how to be able to apply them to this specific thing. She said, I want you to write the final chapter through the lens of divorce. Oh, man. Ouch. I'm thinking, you got to be kidding. Well, I honestly believe now that, again, the universe, God knew what I needed to do, and I needed to write the entire book so I finally got to the last chapter. So she would make me, and I said, I don't know if I can do that. And she said, well, you can write it on anything you want. The only thing is you'll have to get my approval if you're going to write it on anything through the lens of divorce. So I said, Ugh. she said, just give it a week and think about it. Well, here's the funny thing, you guys. I waited a week, and then I sat with a pen and I started to write my thoughts and the thoughts started to come out of me like a fire hose. And the predominant thought that came to me, this is what I, this is what I started with. The, the, the most important question that dictates every aspect of my life right now is this question that came to me as I'm writing this chapter. We've been married for 23 years. And you get some lousy things come at you from lawyers. You get some nasty grams from your ex-wife. You get some tough things coming your way. And I asked myself as I sat there, I asked myself, but who do you want to be as you move through this? Who do you want to be as you move through the process of divorce, Doug? 
Do you want to be that guy when she sends you a nasty gram? You send one back in kind. Do you want to be the hurtful guy that says things that are mean that you're going to uh, hate yourself for later? Who do you want to be as you move through this process? And it began to get me to really look at who I wanted to be as I moved through the process of, of divorce. Because what I found oftentimes in my life is that oftentimes my reaction when I think about the guy that's cutting me off in front of me, we got a place up by the airport here on this Monday morning, people are running for late from work, they'll cut you off. And my first reaction is in my, I wanna, you know, I wanna say, you yeah. But now, so that's my reaction. Now, when I ask myself, who do I wanna be? Well, when I ask myself, who do I want to be in that moment? Now I find more often than not, I respond versus react. And my response is, well, maybe he's going to visit his mother for the last time in the hospital and she's 98 years old and on a ventilator and they told her she's going to die in 20 minutes and he better get there. So by asking myself, I remember the very first day in Connecticut when Governor Lamont announced that we were going to have these gigantic arrows in the supermarkets to go one way and that it was the very first day that we had to wear masks in the stores. I'm a rule follower. So I'm in the grocery store the very next day, and I see this guy walking the wrong direction. The arrows are clearly on the floor, and he doesn't have a mask on. I can feel my reaction as I'm getting pissed. Doesn't this guy know? I took a deep breath, and I said, Doug, who do you want to be in this moment? Well, maybe he didn't see the news last night, Doug. Maybe he doesn't have a television set. Maybe if you didn't see the news, you wouldn't know why those arrows were on the floor. So again, by asking myself that question, who do I want to be in this moment, it gives me the opportunity to back down and to respond versus that knee jerk of me reacting. And it's one of the most profound, I wish that I had learned it long before I turned that time I was 61 or two. I wish I had learned it long before because I can tell you, that doesn't mean you guys died. I don't want to tell you that I've mastered that at all. There are times when the guy, ah. That's what I was going to ask. Like that, there's still practice involved there. No, I probably fail it more often than I pass it. What it does though, this is what it does when you go off the track. When I go off the track, I can quickly get back on the track because then I'll call myself to that higher plane. I'll say, dude, is that who you really want to be in the moment? Is that who, so give you an idea. I had my dog in the car at the YMCA about a month ago. I waited till about this time at night. What time is 5.54? I waited till this time to make sure the heat of the day was 79 degrees. I left all the windows down on my car. The doors were all unlocked and the ignition, the keys were in the ignition. So if anybody wanted, they didn't have to bust the door. And the dog was fine. Low humidity day. And I come out and there's a cop there and he does one of these to me. You know, and as soon as I saw that, I could feel the hackles go up my back. Like, who do you think you are? And he said, do you always leave your dog in the car? And I'm thinking, what kind of wise crack answer can I give? And I said, well, not always, you know. And he kept on going. And finally, I said to him, hold it right there. Have I broken the law? The reason why I came to the gym this late in the day was so the heat of the day had broken. There's no humidity. And he kept on going. And the more agitated he got, the more agitated I got. Finally, I said, if I haven't broken any laws, then all you're doing right now is you're publicly shaming me. You can see clearly the dog is not in distress. Anyway, I left there and I felt badly about my behavior. 
I thought this guy has a hard job. He's got people that he's dealing with all the time that are in his face. Is that who you want to be in the moment? And I said, no, it's not who I want to be. So I called the police department and I said, I'd like to talk to the officer that was just at the YMCA. It took me 20 minutes to get back on track. And I, I didn't talk to him. I talked because he was still out in the road. And I said, would you tell him the guy that he just talked to at the YMCA, just calling to apologize to say, I, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, by the way, I didn't feel like I'd done anything wrong, but I was, I was apologetic in that I was not who I wanted to be in that moment. So again, I will oftentimes fail that test, but I know when I have failed that test, I'll get quickly back on track and do whatever I need to do to, to, to right any wrong that I've made. So, but again, that question has really become a powerful lesson in my life is who do I want to be in this moment? I think there's a lot of brilliance in that. I actually had a similar experience recently. So I live in Northern Indiana, right on Lake Michigan and the beach here, especially after COVID, everybody fled the city the beaches here are just inundated with people and there's no real process to keep the parking lot flowing. Right. So they just started throwing out Rangers the other day, just randomly. We started seeing them and they have the crappiest job because all they're doing is getting yelled at by people who can't find a parking spot. And I was so frustrated, but when we parked, paused, walked up to the guy, offered him a bottle of water and, and I don't know what it did for him, but I know for me, if I wouldn't have done that, it would have ruined my entire day at the beach. It would have kept me in that, that low zone the whole day. And it was, I didn't even know I was doing it, but I guess somewhere in there, I asked myself the question is like, what I really want this to be like, who do I want to be in this situation? And I felt so bad and empathetic for his situation. And there's something special to that. You act differently. Most definitely. Yep. Yeah. It, it elevates your, it definitely elevates your life. We, Nate and I were just talking about that today, how, how uh, we're looking to hire technicians that the first thing, our first job requirement is that they look for opportunities to make other people that they either work with or go clients that they go serve, how can they find a way to improve the quality of their life, that person's life in the building? Because it does a couple of things. It elevates you, the person that gives the, the water bottle, it makes you feel better about yourself and it makes that person feel better. And, and it's a win-win. You know, I, one of the things that I'll do periodically is I'll pay for the person's groceries in front of me, especially if it's an older person. I, I ask permission. And this one woman said, well, why would you do that? She's the woman uh, that I was paying. Why would you do that? And I said, well, you know, the reason why is I remember my mom saying when she uh, got into her 80s, how this nice boy from behind her in the grocery store line, she he obviously knew she was on a fixed income, uh, would pay for her groceries. And I thought, what an... And, I couldn't believe how nice it felt for me hearing a story from my mom about how she was touched in a grocery store line. This guy would never know. And I thought, what a great thing to do. It, it helps. So I started doing that whenever I had the opportunity. And I remember one day, so I asked her, I told her the reason why it was because of all the, uh, the kindness that people had shared with my mom. And three things improved that day. I, the, the last time I did this one particular day, the, the cashier was behind the cash register. And of course she puts up with a lot of nonsense all day. She had tears in her eyes. The woman was really thankful that a young man, I'm 60, she's probably in her mid eighties, would think about an older person enough to want to do that. So I elevated her, her day and I elevated my day. And I think that again, it's, uh, 
it's not only an opportunity that we each have every day, but I think it's a responsibility that, so you reaching out to, uh, to that guy, just giving him a bottle of water, made him feel good, made you feel good. And it, it helps that that's what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah. I didn't feel guilty about my sunburn. Yeah. <laughs> so the sad thing is, unfortunately, that's not what we see on the news. We see the worst of humanity, not the best in humanity. I do believe, I honestly believe this, and I've traveled around the world. Uh, I honestly believe that uh, what we see on the news represents maybe 3% of what life really is. The, the vast majority of us are looking for opportunities to be in service to other people. And I, I honestly believe that. And again, whatever you believe in, that's what's going to manifest in your life. So that's what I choose to believe. That's what I, 66 years on this planet, that's what life has taught me. Uh, It's a pretty good world that we live in overall. That word choose is very important because it's not like everything you've talked about is how intentional you are with your life. And I, I guess, again, is that something that you've just discovered? Is that something that was passed on? People can learn that, right? To choose. I've made so many mistakes in my life. You learn from your mistakes. You learn from what doesn't work. You learn from what does work. And hopefully you're always growing towards getting a more refined, uh, a better version of yourself. But no, I, I have failed so many tests so many times in life. And then you say, well, that didn't feel very good. Here's one of my favorite sentences. And you can put in two words. The sentence remains the same. Whatever you put in, whatever you put in the first blank, automatically self-fills in the second blank. And that is this, you can't give blank away because the harder you try, the more blank keeps on coming back to you. You can't give love away because the harder you try, the more love will keep on coming back to you. You can't give kindness away, the harder you try, the more kindness will come. You can't give hate away because the more hate you give away, the more it'll keep on coming. It just works that way. Whatever word you put into that first blank, it's kind of funny. Somebody shouted out one time I was doing a speech, money. You can't give money away because my, well, you know, it's kind of funny. I said, here's a story that I'll share with you, but it's not a story I would typically share. I'll only do it because you're being silly. I buy groceries for this as another woman one time. I buy groceries for this woman. And again, it wasn't a big, it was a hundred bucks. Buy groceries for this woman. That day, a $5,000 order had come in to my account that I wasn't expecting. And I thought, I've just given away $100. So does it really work that way? I think when you're being authentic, again, you're not doing it. The motivating reason isn't that you're going to get back. You know, you have to do it from a gun. All these things have to be done from a place of authenticity. When in your heart, you're giving it away for the right reasons, not with the expectation I'll get something in return. But when you give it away for the right reason, it comes back to you tenfold. So again, any of this stuff can be learned. But you know, we, we really become a product of the content we allow into our lives, right? We all know that. If what you're doing every day is you're putting in uh, low quality content in terms of the music you listen to, in terms of the conversations you have with people, in terms of the news that you watch, that content is going to bring you down. So I think that we need to really become gatekeepers of the kind of content that we bring into our lives. If we bring the right kind of content, hang with the right people, have the right conversations, do the very best, what happens is our lives become elevated. If not, I, I think it just goes, I've lived long enough to tell you, if you're not working on your life, I know what direction it's going. At least for me, that meter, meter is continually to, continuing to move to the left because what happens is 
difficult things happen to us in, I, I call it the layers of life. The layers of life happen to us. It could be a sick child. It could be the loss of a job. Difficult things happen to us. And that layer, fall. those layers continue to fall on us. And if we're not careful, those layers have a way of bending us down and bringing us to the left of the meter. So we have to find ways to be able to shed those leaves of life to be able to help get that meter up. So uh, again, it's a, it really just boils down to work. We have to be, again, I said it earlier, the only place that happiness comes before hard work is in the dictionary. You got to work if you want a life that it's an inspired life where you feel like you're growing. First question I'd ask anybody is what kind of work are you doing? Don't tell me you're pissing and moaning about it. I would tell my daughters, I don't want to hear you pissing and moaning. Tell me right now, what are you doing? What, what are you reading? Uh, what are you doing for exercise? What kind of food are you putting? I'll ask them questions. If they're telling me they, they've done everything, I'll say, all right, let's look at what else might be happening right now. Is it metabolic? Nine times out of 10, it's because they haven't done the work that they need to, to be able to move their life meter. And it's really cool when you get a call from your daughter saying, dad, an hour after she just did a three mile run, dad, thanks. It's all she needed on that day. You know, sometimes we need more than that, but oftentimes it's just a little tweak from what we're doing right now. Can we circle back to the, the mental toughness piece for a minute? I'm gonna use COVID as an example. Uh, I own a brewery and most of our business comes from people coming into the tap room to buy pints. Sometimes life throws something at you that you, it's, I mean, COVID was hard. <laughs> like we had to, we had to be on top of every single day on what, what was happening in the news and what new laws were coming out and what the death rates were and the infection rates were, and it gets tiring. So in that, I mean, is you know, I, we've I've thrown around a lot the last year and a half surviving is thriving, right? Yeah. Just just being able to keep the doors open tomorrow was a win some days. Is it okay sometimes in those situations for that meter to be on the left because that's just where the life has put you? Yeah. Of course. In fact, the first time I ever showed that slide, and I'll show you, the, I'll send you the graphic. The first time I ever showed that slide, I said, Do you guys know what this, again, this uh, all the way to the left, I am so depressed. And, and on to, all the way to the right, it was my life rocks. I can't keep him. And I said, do you know what that is right there? And I said, those are what my emotions are any given 30 days. So of course, just like the meter in your car because of the gas going down and up, right? The meter changes. I think that's important for me to be able to admit to people, sometimes, man, I just don't feel so good. I think it's really important to share when we are really wrestling with stuff to let people know that, no, my life's not always in the way. It's not always a feeling like that. Again, that's what life is. What the green zone represents more than anything else is not a space where you live all the time. It's a commitment to work to getting towards there, right? Here's the thing that I identified quickly as, as COVID started to come down. I thought, this was really cool. The first 10 days of COVID, I told people that you didn't have to get out of your pajamas or take a shower for 10 days. Something pretty cool about that. <laughs> but here's the problem. You guys have probably seen this before. It's one of the reasons why I will never retire. I love vacation for a week. I absolutely love it to go someplace new. I actually even love it for up to 10 days. I love it. But after a day for me, 11, starting to think, I, 
wonder what's happening in the office. 12, I want to get home. 14, I got to get out of here. For me, 14 days seems to be the limit. Now I can go away. I've trained in Punakana the last two years before COVID for two months, but I was working the whole time. The reason why people started to really, really have difficult times is this. In a heartbeat, we lost our routine. The routines that we had, the daily routine that we had evaporated overnight. You're staying at home. You're not going to work. Businesses are closing. All the routines that we had, and for the first seven to 10 days, it was cool, man. We didn't have to do all the stuff we had been doing for years. But the thing about routines is routines give us structure. And structure is really important to the human experience. Routines give us structure, and structure gives us purpose. And with purpose, we can achieve anything. That, for me, in COVID, has really been the dominating thing to help people with What's your routine looking like right now? Because we all have had to go into new routines. Has that routine been better than the last routine you had? Has it been not as good? Let's identify how your routine isn't what it was. And, and if, you, if you've got certain things in terms of certain things, that there were certain routines that you have down to fill those 24 hours, let's look at those routines and see what it is that need, we need to upgrade. So again, routines give us structure. Structure gives us purpose. With purpose, we can achieve everything. We lost all of our routines. Overnight, we lost our routine. We lost our structure. We are floundering. We lost our purpose. We can't achieve much if we don't have those things. So that's one of the things that I've been encouraging people. What's your routine right now? Let's upgrade your routine. If it's not where it needs to be, let's identify the areas that you're, if you're, if you're having a drink every day at five o'clock and you're feeling depressed, well, maybe that's the first, let's look at your routine over the, over a 24 hour period. Maybe you always had a drink at five o'clock, but now you're tipping one at noontime. Well, maybe that's not the best routine for you to be in. Uh, maybe you stopped exercising. Maybe let's look at your routine. So again, routines give us structure, structure gives us purpose. With purpose, we can achieve anything. So in the last year, one of the reasons why I think we've seen so many fluctuations with our meters going back and forth is because of the upset that we've all experienced in terms of what our routine, what's happened to our routines. And then not only the routines, but thrown in as a business owner, am I going to be able to survive? Am I going to be able to pay my employees? What's it going to look? Because we know we've lost a lot of, uh, a lot of businesses. And so you might've been on the cusp like, you're feeling like life is starting to implode. Not only have you lost your routine, now you've lost your livelihood. That's a scary place for people to be, you know? So, so again, I think that it's important to identify that these are real feelings. These are real th hard things that we're dealing with. Uh, how can you manage in a helpful way as, as positively as you possibly can to get to the other side? I remember in March of, uh, was it March of 2020? There was about uh, we, we sell a fair number of AEDs. Most of what we do is AED management contracts for large-scale deployments around the country. But I remember in March of uh, 2020, uh, in terms of our AED sales, the skids went on overnight. Boom, just like that. We went from selling, 
I don't remember, the volume dropped by 90% overnight. And I wasn't sure if we were going to have a business in 60 days. The good news is that our the, the more important aspect of our business, the AED, the management side, the maintenance side actually grew during COVID, whereas the hardware side for three months actually just went off the cliff. And I'm thinking, oh, is this going to run into all areas of my business? The good news is it didn't. So we've been able to grow uh, through, through a very difficult time. So, so the thing I would tell you is that, you know, it's when you're feeling what you're feeling, where your, your meter is all the way to the left, I write about it in the book at some point, let it be okay in that moment, let it be okay. Sometimes again, you get knocked to your knees. The reason why you're knocked to knee, your knees is you need to be able to gain the perspective that only being on your knees is going to give you. Let it be okay. Don't be in a rush to hurt to get up, you know, but, but I think that the thing really to me is always this to accept the fact that you're going to get knocked to your knees. The question is, I always tell people, the question is, will you give up or will you get up? That's really the question. It's always going to be the question. Will I commit to moving my life meter or will I just, will this be it? I'm just giving up. Some people, that's what they will do is that I just, I can't do it anymore. And I get that. Maybe at some point in time in my life that I'll just, I'm 92 years old and I just ready to hang it up. But I'm, a, I'm, I'm far off from that now. So again, the committal, the commitment is what do I've been knocked to my knees. I'm all laying all the way on the left of the meter, but I'm going to get up. My, my meter was knocked all the way to the left uh, a year ago in July. I didn't leave my couch for 30 days. 30 days, my meter was down to the left. What happened was this. Heart disease runs in my family. My dad had a heart attack at 62. My brother had a heart attack. My younger brother has atrial fibrillation. I've never had a heart problem. So my, my uh, primary care physician wanted me to go get this test called the calcium score test. Calcium score test measures arterial plaque buildup. You're supposed to get a zero on the test. I had a buddy that got a 10, a 10. They put him on Lipitor immediately. I knew I was gonna go in there, I was gonna crush that test. I went in, I took the, they lay you on an MRI machine and that's how they measure the calcium score. And I got a call two days later from my doctor knowing I was going to get a zero. And I said, how did I do? And he said, well, not so good. I said, did I get a 10? He said, no. He said, you got 1,087. I was just going to ask if it was a 10 scale. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a 10 not so good and you got 1,087? 1,087, yeah. I said, what does that mean? <laughs> he said, it means that you should expect to have a cardiac event in the next year to five years. You should expect this. You should expect it. Yeah. I'm getting that information. And what he told me in that moment, what I, what he said and what I heard, I heard you've got one foot on a banana peel and the other one in the grave is what I heard. It was the first time in my life that I ever had to process my own mortality. When you've got your physician saying you should expect a cardiac event, a serious cardiac event in the next year to five years, it is a wake up call. I didn't leave my couch for a month. 
because I wasn't sure if my next step was going to be my last step. Talk about having your meter run all the way to the left. That's where I was. And then as the month progressed, I moved from being frightened that my next step might be my last and accepted the fact that if I was going to die, it was not going to be on my couch. It was going to be on my bike. It was going to be out doing a five mile swim. It was going to be doing the things that I love, the things that moved my life meter. So I gradually went back out and got on my bike. I gradually went back out and started doing long swims, five hour swims, whatever it happened to be. I gradually went out and accepted the fact that tomorrow could be my last day. But guess what? I've had friends that have died 20 or 30 years ago. I got 20 or 30 years out of them. I got three beautiful daughters. I've had such a blessed life. So many wonderful people. I had parents that loved me. I am so thankful for today. Now, I will tell you this is a guy sitting behind me or sitting in behind you, sitting behind, yeah, sitting behind you, uh, never goes very far away from me without a defibrillator, given the fact that we're in that business. But the, the point is, I've accepted my own mortality. It could be tomorrow, but it hasn't been so far. So I'm going to enjoy what I've been given today. I'm going to do what I can to move my life meter today because there's no guarantee of tomorrow. So last night, yesterday, uh, I, I worked, but my, my middle daughter was having a tough time in her house two hours from here. Dad, can you come down? I said, of course, honey, I'll come down. And I spent a day and a half at her house just trying, she's moving to California, just trying to cheer her up. My youngest daughter had a soccer game in uh, Boston last night. So I drove up there. Game didn't start till seven. I didn't finish the game until almost 10.30. I didn't want to drive the two hours home. I stayed in the hotel room, but I got to do that. So again, I think that one of the things in terms of moving your life meter is really figure out the things that make your heart sing and to make sure you're living in a way that's close to those things that make your heart sing. And my kids make my heart sing. So uh, it's not a hardship to take a day off from work. It's, a, it's really a celebration for me. So, but yeah, so again, in terms of, man, I'll tell you what, the beauty of, of needles is they move both ways. That's the beauty of needles, right? The question is, if that fuel, you wouldn't go past the gas station. Well, actually, some people would. My ex wife used to. <laughs> yeah. she, she'd say, well, I know, I, I know I can go 10 miles past what this is telling me. I'm thinking, and I'm just the other way around. So the point is, the beauty of needles is they move both ways. So if you're feeling it's down here to the left, yeah, it's down to the left. I know it's down to the left. See, the, the, the beauty for me of the meter is it gives me a visual. It gives me a visual to think my life meter is right here right now. What's causing it to be right there? Am I doing the work that I need to? Or do I need to stay down here? Again, remember what I'm saying? You get knocked to your knees. It changes your perspective. It gives you, I got knocked to my knees a year ago. I was not, I was trying to figure out how I was going to get back up, but I was going to take the time I needed to, to stay there until I did. I did. 30 days later, I got up and was able to start moving my life meter back. So again, when that happens, again, the beauty of needles, the beauty of meters is they move. That's what they're supposed to do. So I think the visual for me is allows me to be able to understand where my needle is, identify what's caused it to be there, and then to gradually move it back into the green zone. Make sense? Yeah. No, that's great. Profound. Doesn't just make sense. That's life-changing stuff. I was going to ask, I was interested in how you got into AEDs, but I think you just connected that dot for me. Yeah, the way that uh, the way it actually happened, it was is more by 
accident than anything else. I started in the business of selling exercise equipment. My degree is in physical education. I graduated in 1979 from Central Connecticut. I knew I was never going to be a gym teacher, but at that point in time in 1979, that was really the only option you had. So as it turned out, I uh, moved to Alaska, earned enough money to start a little fitness business where I started doing consulting work for large companies in the Hartford area. One thing led to another and companies were asking me what kind of equipment they should buy for, the, for Now keep in mind, this is in the early eighties. There were no gyms at that. There were no health clubs. There were YMCAs, but they weren't the health clubs that we know today. So, and corporate fitness was just starting to turn a corner. And so I started selling exercise equipment to uh, corporations in the Northeast. And one of the things that a business friend of mine said to me uh, years ago is if you're doing the same thing in the same way for five years in a row, you're on your way out of business and you don't even know it. Well, you look at Blockbuster, you look at uh, a number of hotel chains, you look at Toys R Us, they've done the same thing and they didn't adapt to the changing time. So that really stood out to me. So as it turned out, one client asked me one time, this goes back probably 20 years ago, uh, do you sell AEDs? I didn't know what an AED was 20 years ago. And he told me what it was. And I said, well, I'll look into it. So anyway, that's how it started. And then I started selling them. And then as it turned out, a major manufacturer um, liked the work that I was doing and said, uh, hey, we'd like you to come to work for us. That was like, like I say, in being in the workforce for over 40 years, the only job I've ever had, I always tell people the only real job I've had out of college was eight and a half years working for that manufacturer. And then I took uh, six months off to swim the English Channel to train my final six months. And I thought I'd go back. And then I realized I didn't want to go back. I was an entrepreneur at heart. And uh, I, I love the AED space. I love saving lives. It's something really cool about getting a, a call from a client that you sold an AED to and, and found out that it saved a 17-year-old girl's life the day before. Now, I've had 50 of those calls uh, since 2006. And uh, so then I realized the, the, there was a real opportunity in the space where AEDs were maintained and managed because so many of them are improperly maintained and managed that they wouldn't wouldn't work at point of rescue so that's what we do now is we identified an area that has been underserved and so we're aggressively going after the aed maintenance space uh nationally so that's how i came to it is actually through selling exercise equipment and then uh it's kind of funny i still sell exercise equipment but it it's probably represents one percent of our sales right now where the 99 percent of our sales has something to do with the aed industry and, and I speak professionally, it's more of a hobby than anything else. And the reason why it's more of a hobby is uh, I realized in 2003, when I first started speaking professionally, I get paid really well. Um, but the problem was that uh, I remember uh, my first speaking engagement was in Denver. Um, I got paid $5,000 to do a 90 minute speech in, in 2003. Was it 2003? Yeah, 2003, almost 20 years ago. But it took me a day to get to Denver. It took me a day for the presentation to prepare, and it took me a day to get home. And I realized that I lost three days. And if it was one of my children's birthday, I could have said, well, I'm not going to take a speaking gig. But what if it was my daughter's recital that I wouldn't even know when that was going to go on a calendar or an art show or whatever it happened to be? And I thought, I don't want to miss those things. Those things are too important to me. So I made the decision early on that my speaking career would be more uh, Northeast based, any place that I could drive to and be home in the same day, I would take on a client. Um, but uh, again, I do it more as a passion because I, 
again, I've learned a lot, not that I'm full of wisdom, I'm not, but I've been exposed to so many cool people with wisdom that it can't help but rub off eventually where you learn some of these lessons that are important lessons to pass on to other people. So that's really why I, I speak to groups now. It has more to do with sharing what has been shared with me than anything else. That's the good fight, I believe. Keep fighting. Yeah. Yep. Doug, where can people that are listening to this find you, find your book? We didn't even mention the title of it. We, we just, there's so much good content. Please. Yeah. The book is called The Mental Toughness Advantage. And you can find it obviously on Amazon. Here's one of the cool stories. Where I always tell people, look, I, may, I, I don't apologize for this. I was a solid, I always tell people I was in the half of my class that made the top half possible. I was a solid 197 student all the way through. So if I can write a book, anybody can write a book. So here's a funny thing. Being a D student all the way through my high school career and my first two years of college, it's kind of cool to have somebody say, hey, we want you to publish. We want you to write a book that we'll publish. I always wanted to find out if my high school English teacher was still alive. I was going to send her a copy, uh, whether she is or not, I don't know, because she would never have believed it. But uh, the funny thing is, so six months after it's been on Amazon, I get a call from the publisher that says, look, this thing is selling so well on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, because most of this stuff you're probably aware is, is all done now. It's called print on demand. Nobody wants to spend the money to have these things printed and put on a bookshelf if they're not going to sell. So it's all done print on demand. But if there's a certain volume of books that sell, Barnes and Noble says, hey, let's put it on our shelf. So I get a call from my uh, book publisher that says Barnes and Noble has put this on 600. They have 640 stores. They put it on every one of their stores across the country. So if somebody, they don't have many, they'll have one or two copies on it. But any Barnes and Noble uh, bookstore will have it. Uh, Books a Million, that's another large book chain. I think they've got 260 locations. They put it on all their bookshelves. So walk in there and know that a solid D student's got his book on a Barnes and Noble's. (laughs) (laughs) So real quick, can you just briefly say, like talk about what are the five steps? Yeah. Well, I can't briefly talk about it. Uh, I mean, briefly, and I'm sure you could go on for three hours about it, but give us the rundown. You know, we we uh, we really covered uh, uh, in the in our hour together, our hour and a half together. We really talked about two pages in the book. The first thing I identify in the book is what is mental toughness. There was no definition for mental toughness when I sat down to write the book. So I had to come up with my own definition. So my definition of mental toughness is this. It's the mindset. We, one of you mentioned mindset earlier. Mental toughness is the mindset to boldly advance toward a goal regardless of pain, fear, or circumstance. Mental toughness is the mindset to boldly advance toward a goal, regardless of pain, fear, or circumstance. Well, I didn't know when I wrote that uh, definition, we would be going through COVID, which would fall into the circumstance category. So it's a mindset. We've been given this circumstance. Mental toughness is the mindset to boldly advance toward a goal, regardless of pain, fear, or circumstance. So that's what I believe that we all have to do right now is we have to be mentally tough, commit to getting to the other side of this thing because of the circumstance that's thrown our way. But the chapters are, the five steps are, let go and take charge. Second thing is create a mission statement. 
Third thing is prioritize the positive. Four, chapter four is flex your flexibility. Chapter five is step outside your comfort zone. And I tell people it's not, I don't even like calling it your comfort zone. I like, because the stepping in, nobody wants to step out of your comfort zone. But if we, again, mindset management helps us reframe things, instead of thinking of it as stepping out of your comfort zone, think of it, think of it as stepping into your growth zone. One's positive, the other one's kind of fearful and negative. So again, what, what mindset management really teaches us is how can I reframe whatever it is that I'm feeling right now in a way that's positive versus scary, fearful, um, or whatever. But I, listen to you guys, I appreciate you having me on. If you ever want to do anything on business, I've got a lot of things that I've made so many bad decisions in business over the 40 years. But I've, and it, the good news is uh, I've, I've learned from all those lessons. So I have a lot that I can share on business as well. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we barely even scratched the surface. Today. Yeah. Yeah. No, I got a lot of stories from a lot of people that I'd love to share if you ever want to do it again. I, I would love a round two at some point. Sounds good. Doug. Thank you so much for your time, your energy, your wisdom, your transparency with us. We appreciate you. You bet. I appreciate it, you guys. Have a good night. And, uh, and remember, can I trust you? Will you care about me? Will you strive for excellence? They're all game changers. Thanks so much, you guys. Have a good night. Thanks, yeah, Doug. you too. This is fun. Thanks. Bye-bye.